Hey, it's Fiona Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we talk about how money issues can be the biggest turnoff to a marriage and why it's important to have those uncomfortable conversations if you want to have comfortable time with your partner. We'll also be looking into the massive countrywide protests and counter-protests about gender identity in schools and into a situation in BC that has left an RCMP Mountie dead and another that's resulted in a mass stabbing in Chinatown. Is there a problem with the justice system in our western province? And with the housing crisis continuing to grow across Canada, we're seeing more people living in RVs. Could this be tied to high mortgage rates? So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. Between a lot of partners, the discussion around money is like an anti-orgasm potion, right? So how do you fix that? How do you deal with it? I mean, in today's day and age, how do you avoid the conversation about funds and cash and cash flow and things you want to buy and things you need and things you just want? going forward or dream about together, perhaps going forward. But for many people, the concept of the conversation around money can be a very difficult one. Listen to financial expert Eric Roberge. He is uh, speaking on the common problems with couples and what's going on there. Here, have a listen. Um, People argue about money and they get divorced about money. But the argument is usually about spending. And there's typically one spouse who is more freewheeling and spends more than the other. And so if one spouse is out there just spending on a whim and the other spouse is saying that they're not saving enough, there's going to be a conflict right there. So there can be balance. Bring that back to what you value. Well, this spouse might value freedom in general. So there you go. There's an expert, uh, Eric Roberge, uh, and he's talking about the situation. But you know what? Money problems are going to exist for everybody. We've all had them. We all talk about them. Sometimes it's not a problem. You know, maybe you're fortunate enough to be in a position in your life where, you know, you have enough to make ends meet and a little extra at the end. And it's really about how to spend it or how to save it. You know, some families aren't uh, on the same page when it comes to that. So with the high cost of groceries and all that kind of stuff, right, it's a very difficult conversation to have and frankly turns you off, makes it difficult. Money matters and sex are underpinned by the same set of needs. Security, safety, and belonging, self-respect, satisfaction, basically in that order, right? So when you and your partner both have basic needs and they're both all being met and you enjoy a healthy level of self-esteem, enabling you both to respect one another, your motivations to strive for better is usually something that you can both discuss in the bedroom and have it come out kind of a natural conversation that doesn't impact your intimacy. However, financial stresses in a relationship attacks the same core underlying needs. It's like an anti-orgasm portion, according to the um, experts that uh, wrote this article. Right? And it wreaks havoc on your sex life. A good example, is, if, for example, is if you and your partner disagree on spending priorities, right? Say one person's racking up uh, credit card balances and uh, the other, you know, is trying to save and so on. Uh, so the best way for you to, to, to stay together, number one, to have communication around money together and have that lead to perhaps even some intimacy after the fact, if you can believe it, sex followed by a financial discussion. Well, it's possible. 
So it's all based on what, right? It's all based on mutual. It's, it's based on the same things that all good relationships, marriages and partnerships and relationships with, with the siblings and with your children and, you know, your parents and so on. It's all based on the same stuff. Transparency, right? Being open. When you're open with somebody, it's the ultimate experience of intimacy, right? It's the ultimate experience of intimacy because you're risking you're risking your your uh, safety, if you will. Sometimes it's a it's a it's a safety conversation, emotional safety conversation, right? So um, if you're able to risk with somebody, then you know you're probably at at your most comfortable level with them. So open the kimono, as this article goes on to say, open the kimono and share it all. Transparency and trust is what strategy the strategy targets. With those in place, you can have your honey. And, uh, or I'm sorry, you and your honey can make a plan to fix almost anything without it. Nothing will work, uh, will get you better, right? We'll make it work. So jot down everything you owe and owe, you know, what you own, what you owe, what your bills are like, put it all together and kind of share it all openly. Be straight up. Like now is the time, maybe not tonight, but tomorrow. Um, and after that conversation, my guess is you're not going to be in the mood for sex, but you know, work through it spend the rest of the time here with me talking about this for the next few minutes and, and and help me work through this with you together so the first conversation is an open transparent conversation where you share exactly where you're at you're open and honest that's why it's an open honest conversation that establishes the path forward that gives the two of you a common ground to be spring a spring forward from uh to get to a better place right so relax together and dream sometimes the idea of, of, of sitting down and working through your money is you know talking about and dreaming about and thinking about where you might want to go and travel plans my wife and i do this all the time think about where we want to go next experiences we're big into buying experiences as opposed to things right now in our life so you know maybe it's talking about changing careers or the next job level you, you know maybe you some, you're working for a company, you're thinking about maybe going to work for yourself. All these, these are, are somewhat financial conversations. But if you sit together and you close your eyes and you hold hands and you have a nice, soft, beautiful conversation with some soft music, maybe in the background, a candle or two, you know, maybe a nice cup of tea or a glass of wine if you're able to drink uh, responsibly, right? And it does act like somewhat of an aphrodisiac, the sharing, the dreaming, right? sitting together. Oh, can you imagine? Okay. So a couple more years of saving like this, we're going to be in a place where we're able to do this. And then we can save for that big trip to wherever. And then like for the next couple of years, you're talking about that. So then you get to work and you play as a team. So now you're brought together with the dream, the dream of the future and the saving and the, you know, the, the spending reductions and all that get you to a place where you want to get to as a team. And that then gets you closer to that honey, that, that little honeydew spot or, or that, that soft spot in the relationship where you're able to be together and be, and be um, intimate, right? Next thing is to make a money date with each other at least once a week. So that's a, that's a date where you sit down and the conversation and the date is all around money, but communication and accountability are what the strategy is here. But carving out time, uninterrupted time to connect on money issues work issues, how you're both feeling, right? You're talking about your health, talking about what you need from one another. These initial conversations, these conversations feel a little a little bit chunky, a little bit off in the beginning, but you know, for some, maybe you don't even talk about it at all, but I'm telling you, 
Start talking to one another about your dreams. Start talking to each other about the things you want to do together, the things you ha- you know are planning to do with your partner. And that will bring you together on those difficult conversations. And it should lead to an intimate ending at the end of it that should satisfy both of you. And that's what's important is that you both come out of this relationship satisfied, happy, heard, respected, all of those really key words. So when we come back from break, interesting uh, story. Uh, there are many people in Toronto and I think across Canada for the most part that are living out of their, uh, out of their RVs parked on the side of the street. Uh, we're going to get into talking to an expert about uh, this, this phenomenon, if you will, and uh, look at what's happening and what we can do to maybe make this a thing. Maybe this is a way to deal with, uh, with people that, um, you know, don't have uh, what it takes to pay the exorbitant rents that are out there today that people have to pay to try to get into a simple bachelor. I mean, a bachelor apartment in Toronto now is over $2,000. Basement apartments are in the same range. So it's getting tough. So you have to live somewhere. RV is not a bad idea, quite frankly. You know, there are a lot of folks, um, God, I don't have to tell you, you probably know this story better than I do. A lot of people are having a hard time figuring out, especially young people, figuring out how to find a place to live um, and how to be able to do that in some affordable way. So, for example, many of them are, you know, looking for roommates. Um, you know, there are many that um, are, are looking to the, actually some relationships that maybe have been moved uh, up a little bit quicker. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that uh, the couple can now live together. Maybe they speed up that uh, that decision to make things more affordable. But, you know, $2,000, $2,200, certainly in Toronto, Vancouver, all the main markets across Canada doesn't get you very much. Right, just doesn't get you very much. So a lot of people are living in in RVs of some sort, and frankly, they, they you know, they're I've always been you know kind of intrigued by that whole lifestyle of living in an RV, not living, but certainly traveling in one. Uh, but in uh, Toronto, down in the Portlands area, and I'm sure uh, in Portland areas or areas that are kind of out in the outskirts of major cities, certainly in the U.S. as well, uh, places like Los Angeles, Miami, those Arizona, uh, a lot of people living raw, if you will, out of an RV, right? Some, unfortunately, do it out of a car, some side of the road in a tent. Some aren't quite so lucky, and you have to use things like cardboard boxes and other horrible uh, choices for what you one would call a residence. So with me tonight is Greg Cook. He's an outreach worker with Sanctuary Toronto, and uh, he's going to join us and talk with me about this situation and, and how we might make something out of this all, right? Greg, thanks for being here with me, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, cool. How long have you been um, an outreach worker in Toronto? And kind of give me an idea what that's like for you. Yeah, um, I've been uh, at my current job since 2009, and then I worked at a youth drop-in before that. So uh, you know, almost getting close to 20 years now. Wow. And uh, I guess over the 20 years, for sure, you've seen... Uh, as I have as a you know a therapist, crisis worker, and so on, uh, things have really deteriorated for a lot of people that are you know in a homeless situation for youth that are finding themselves lost and kind of on the on the street. Um, how do you kind of cope on a day by day basis to, I you know keep going? I mean, I know what works for me. What works for you? Uh, it's tough. Uh, a lot of death, um, especially in the last. I mean, it's, it's been been rough, but especially since I'd say maybe. 2014, 2015, when just the numbers kept going up at such a rapid rate, and then intersecting with that, we have the um, the drug poisoning 
a yeah. crisis epidemic. Yeah. Um, what keeps me going? Um, I think good, good, good uh, coworkers. Um, uh, I go a lot. I do a lot of walking. I go a, a long walk yeah. at least. Good therapist. I don't know. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Twenty years, twenty years of doing it, and you know, and looking at the results, it's kind of, you know, it's, you, you think you, I know for sure you, I know I can hear it in your voice, but certainly I felt, you know, person like you was making a difference every day and affecting people every day. But if you're at all like me, you know, for the three that you affect, you know, you leave six behind, and sometimes that's difficult yeah. to go to sleep with. No. Yes. No. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about Sanctuary Toronto. Let's get off of you for a minute here. Tell me about Sanctuary <laughs> Toronto. Who do you help? What's it all about? What's the mandate? And kind of how's it going? Is it success, not success? Uh, so we're right downtown Toronto uh, near Young and Bloor. Um, and we serve meals. We have a health clinic. We do art. Um, we check in on people. Um, it's, what we try to do is offer like a community center for people who are mostly unhoused or are living in government housing who, who are on social assistance, don't have a lot of money, um, and uh, they kind of do life together, um, look out for each other, reverse overdoses, kind of all sorts of things. And uh, I think it's a special special place, and, a, and it's a, a special job. Um, yeah. Interesting. So it's it's a it's a physical location. It's is it or is it a, a team of street workers or both? It's uh, I it's a physical location, but then um, some of us. Uh, like a big chunk of our job is going walking around and checking in on people, either panhandling or, or in tents in the valley. Or, or um, yeah, uh, the, the organization it does have a physical location. So interesting because you said Young and Bloor, and the people that uh, my my listeners that aren't from Toronto, it's it's a main hub in down in the beginning of the downtown Toronto. But I would say probably the one of the more affluent parts of the city. Interesting place to have this kind of a facility. You would think that it should be lower down towards the the harbor and under near the under the bridge and near the bottom of some of the more tenderloin streets and neighborhoods. Um, are you finding that people will make their way up? from down there to come to you or is it mostly you going down to see them? Um, I mean, it, I mean, so some of that, like 10 years ago when I started or in 2009, when I started working there, there were still rooming houses on the street that I work on, uh, which is Charles. I mean, it's all condos now. Oh, right. Yeah. Houses. Right. Right. They tore down. Um, so definitely at this point, the street has like, gentrified massively. Um, you don't have to walk far, like Allen Gardens. There's there's dozens of tents in Allen Gardens, and, and that's a 15 minute walk. Um, um, and then you can go to the, the Rosedale Valley, which is a eight minute walk, and there's there's tents, many tents down there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also young, right, right next to Young Street. So Young Street is historically um, people panhandle there um, because there's lots of foot traffic, and so you, you can help supplement. Um, Ontario Works, which is the welfare, or or ODSB, which is the disability pension here in, in Ontario. Yeah, so um, it makes sense, right? That, that, that now you're describing it to me. That makes sense. So this whole thing with people living in RVs and in their cars is it's not a, really a new thing in Toronto. It's been around for a while. Why are people starting to pay attention to it now? Um, I think just as like I was looking at the cost of rent like so right now they're saying the average cost of rent in toronto is as of september was two thousand five hundred forty two dollars you go back only to 2021 october it was 1800 right so like just a massive increase 10 years ago it was just over a thousand dollars so just Mm -hmm. 
I, I think um, there's just more and more people it's increasing at an alarming rate that just can't afford housing. Um, and I think a big, big reason why there's just so many more people living in cars and RVs is, is historically in, in Toronto, we have really good public transit. And so many people who don't make a lot of money just don't own a car. It just doesn't make sense. But I think what we're seeing is people who have historically maybe had decent, decent work um, or even now have, have decent jobs just can't afford that $2,500 for a one bedroom mm-hmm. um, or maybe a little less for a bachelor. And so are having to resort to, to living out of vehicles. We are having a conversation about people living in RVs and vehicles. Uh, in particular, we're talking about a story as it relates to the Portland area in downtown Toronto, but similar situations across the country where such um, streets and parts of the city that uh, perhaps are a little more uh, out of reach, um, where people are kind of parking their cars without you know, the fear, hopefully, of getting ticketed or towed away. God forbid, you imagine being in your RV you know, that's how you're living. You go to your job because these are not people that aren't working for the most part. A lot of these people are working, some of them on disability of various kinds. But the idea of people living in vehicles is more common uh, in places like Los Angeles, Miami, warm, warm climates, right? Um, where, you know, it's a somewhat inexpensive way to live uh, if you can afford the vehicle itself and then gas and insurance and all those kinds of things. So we do have an expert. His name is Greg Cook. We're going to join him in just a second. But I want you to listen to a couple of clips here about a woman who's actually living out of an RV and some suggestions that she has. If you're in that same situation and listening to me right now, have a listen. Even when you're not in the van, you want to make sure people aren't peering in and going, hey, people live in there. Look at all that shiny stuff. Look at the stuff we can steal. So, best thing, window screen. There are very few lots in, in the downtown Corish that have reasonably priced monthly parking or consistent or places that even get back to you when you actually ask them and you're like, I do want to pay you $500 a month for my monthly parking. They have spots or whatever. However, the only places that have monthly parking are located more kind of outside, like Topco, Scarborough. Well, there you go. So there's some some tips if you can find some long-term parking. I know that I believe it's Walmart. Um, Walmart allows for 24-hour parking in their parking lots um, without any issues. So many people do uh, use Walmart parking lots um, across the country. Uh, a lot of people that are traveling actually do their four or five hours by the side of the road, so to speak, in a Walmart parking lot. They can, 20, if it's a 24-hour store, you can have access to their uh, food service facilities, their bathrooms, and so on. So, um, you know, they're, they're this is a lifestyle that many people may not choose but end up with. Uh, coming back with my my guest, his name is Greg Cook. He's an outreach worker here in Toronto at Sanctuary Toronto. Thanks, Greg, for hanging around uh, and continuing to be a part of this with us. Um, so can Art, we talked about before we went to break, the idea of raw land, you know, for example, the Portland areas that we're talking about. There's so many, you know, open you know, areas of unused land, perhaps owned and ready for some development five, 10 years from now. Can't we create something, do you think, where people can park a, a proper vehicle with proper, you know, uh, you know, as opposed to something just falling apart in a, in a place like that, in a safe space and create communities? Uh, it's that you, you suggest that. I was doing a bit of research, um, just thinking this through. Um, and I, you, you mentioned that a lot of people live in RVs and, and cars in LA and it's, it's around 20,000 is what they're saying. Um, and what they've done in cities like LA and, and around there is actually create what they call safe parking spaces, mm-hmm. um, where there's regular trash collection. Um, there's a space for people to use bathrooms and showers. 
So like, I, I think those would be really key things to, to offer um, in, in the short term uh, for people that are forced to live in, in their vehicles. Um, like obviously hygiene, um, well-being, maybe maybe have, have some nurses go by, some health, health professionals go by and check in on people. Um, I think I think it would be a great idea. Um, yeah. The term you used, Greg, was uh, forced to live in their vehicles. I know, you know, I spent many years as an outreach worker and, and actually talking to people living raw, much more raw than um, than uh, in a, an RV. But some people, for many people, it's a choice, right? Like, yeah, it's around the fact that you can't afford real rent somewhere else. But, you know, mm-hmm. an RV isn't that inexpensive. So hopefully, you know, you're into something that's certainly much more affordable than trying to make a down payment or something on a house. But, um, you know, I, I think if people could, I, I think this might be something like maybe the provinces and the cities should be investing in, you know, inexpensive, you know, single person RVs and lining them up in, you know, raw in, in areas where the land, you know, can be can be uh, used. It's, it's suitable where they can put in porta potties and, and porta showers. Why don't we look at that? Why why isn't the government, do you think, looking at these options uh, more realistically as opposed to, you know, talking about uh, building more shelters and so on, which we know isn't happening fast enough? Um, I think most, like my observation is, is people would rather have housing. Um, I mean, I would say that some cities, Toronto isn't currently, but some cities are, like Kitchener-Waterloo, for example, recently built, um, put a bunch of sheds and put a fence around it um, just outside of near the city limits. Um, Kingston here has done something similar. Hamilton's also looking at doing something similar. So I do think um, that kind of thing is being done. I mean, I personally would rather see the cost of housing go down. Like we, we know that we didn't have mass homelessness like we have now um, mm-hmm. back when we had much more uh, affordable housing being built. Um, but I do think in the, in the, in the short term until, until we kind of get that, those things turned around, I think a tent is better than no tent. An RV is better than no RV, yeah. uh, a place to park your RV where you're not going to get harassed, um, where, where you have a sense of stability is, is better than not having that. So, so definitely I think um, it, it'd be really important um, for, for people to have a kind of a safer place to be able to, to park their car or RV. Do you think that you find that the people that you interact with that are, you know, by the side of the road, so to speak, um, do they, do they, do they become a community? Like, are, are they friendly with one another or is it the same as any neighborhood where you may not like your neighbor, two vehicles behind you? Um, or do they come together in some way to, to try to make it more reasonable and, and uh, uh, less painful for everybody? I think, I mean, I think you have all sorts of people, but I, I do think in general, my observation is um, when you don't have a lot of money, you, you have to stick together. You have to look out for each other. Um, and, and and definitely, I mean, I've heard many people say that that's one of the reasons they don't like to go into the shelters is because they can't look out for each other in the same way they can in an encampment um, and check in on each other. Um, so definitely, I, I that's, I would say most of my my observation in my years of outreach. What are your kids being taught in school? Any idea or your grandchildren? So the idea is we're not quite sure, um, 
you know, if the, the whole idea of this discussion right now is to understand how early and at what point topics like sexual orientation, gender identity, that kind of stuff should be developed and introduced into the school system. So Ontario Health and Physical Education cur uh, Curriculum um, was uh, introduced in 2015. Uh, that was the first major overhaul to the curriculum since 98, 1998. But the changes touched on touched off like a real uh, firestorm of criticism topics to be introduced as early as grade three along and there was no mandatory requirement to teach them really until grade six so let's understand what we're talking about queer and trans kids actually all kids have a right to education that allows them to access accurate vocabulary and accurate knowledge i'm reading from uh, part of the report here about things like gender sexuality identity and the body according to dana um, sittler uh, she's an English professor and the director of the Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies at the University of Toronto. <clears throat> but let's look at it together here. Let's see, um, you know, what we're actually looking at. What are people being taught at what level, right? And so, you know, I think if we understand it, then we can have an opinion on whether it's too much or not enough, right? So that's the whole purpose of uh, what this uh, exercise is. Love to hear from you, hear what you think. So in grade one, Children learn about senses and hygiene, as well as to identify their body parts, including their genitalia, by their proper names as part of a teaching kids to understand and respect themselves and their bodies, as well as how to communicate to ask for help in case of illness, injury, or abuse in grade one. Okay, that's an awful lot on a kid, but okay. In grade two, children learn about body changes according to the current curriculum. Children learn about body changes in the basic stages of human development, such as infancy, childhood, and adolescence. Okay, no biggie. No, no, big leap from grade one to grade two. They seem to, I wonder how they're leaving that whole discussion around abuse and stuff behind. But anyway, at grade three, children are taught about healthy relationships, uh, consent, and personal space. It's grade three now. Ways to respond to issues such as bullying and peer pressure. <clears throat> what factors? excuse me, what factors and habits can affect their physical and emotional development, as well as what makes people unique, not only their hair and skin color, but their learning abilities, cultural values, and different types of families. Man, this should be education for adults. Don't you think, Leo? Like, uh, with my buddy Leo, he's in the studio with me here. We're talking about this. Um, grade four, just remember, this is grade two, grade three, grade four. Grade four, I mean, grade four, I'm, I'm happy if they can wear the right shoes on the right feet. But anyway, here I go. Discussion with students include the physical changes that can happen during puberty and the emotional and social impact these changes can have on a developing child, as well as how personal hygiene may need to change during puberty. So that's the introduction to things like, right, like grooming and, and, and you know, deodorant perhaps for, for certain uh, young people and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? In grade five now, because we're moving along here, right? Grade five, kids learn about factors that may impact their understanding of themselves and their personal identity, including their sexual orientation. So this is what's starting to get people all up in a knot, right? They're all concerned about sexual identification. And they're concerned that, you know, kids, quote unquote, straight kids might be impacted by uh, queer kids in some fashion who, you know, who uh, identify as, um, you know, in some, in some form and, and, and want to use a different pronoun, perhaps. So they're concerned. A lot of parents in the, on, the, on the don't teach it in class are concerned about the impact it's going to have on their kids. Maybe they don't want their kids to start thinking about their sexual identity. Think about that. 
how sad that might be. Maybe that's, you know, and frankly, if they do, they should certainly be having discussions at home, don't you think? I mean, that's really where a lot of this needs to start. But, um, or, you know, teachers need to talk about this with families saying, you know, we're going to be learning about this in the next coming weeks. And here's a handout at home that you can use to help support what we're teaching in school so the kids don't feel lost when they leave the classroom. But in grade five, they're learning about sexual orientation, reproductive system, how the body changes during puberty, all that kind of stuff. Uh, men, uh, menstruation, sperm production in grade five. Okay. In grade, I don't know. I don't, I'd like to hear what you think. I, I, I'm trying not to have an opinion because it's not really my job, but my opinion is I think this is some heavy stuff. And I'm not sure how it's taught, but it's some heavy stuff, right? In grade six, student, students learn about impact of viewing pornography and the physical, social, and emotional changes that may occur in adolescence. Well, that's a big leap, right? We're going from viewing pornography to understanding the physical, social, and emotional changes that occur in adolescence. So what's pornography? Maybe we're talking about kids that are sending inappropriate pictures to one another in sixth grade. I don't know, Leo. How old are you in sixth grade? 12? Yeah, 12, 11, 12. I think I was 13 in grade seven, maybe. I think um, I was like that, like 12 to 13. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So 12, 13-year-olds are starting to understand viewing pornography. Like, really? I, I don't know if the kids even know, need to know that that stuff exists for the sake of, you know, uh, their protection, but you know, are, are we that concerned that kids are being, you know, abused and used in ways that are creating these types of pornographic productions, and that's why we need to bring it to their attention? I don't know, but they need to learn respect for themselves and others, and, and themselves and others, understand consent and clear communication. No means no, that kind of stuff, right? Kids also discuss stereotypes and how assumptions about gender, race, sexual orientation, ethnicity, culture, and abilities can affect a person's feelings about themselves, as well as discuss ways to challenge and respond to stereotypes, homophobia, and racism. I'm telling you, after, after, treating, after treating and working with thousands of teenagers, like a couple of thousand for sure in my career, I don't think they learned this stuff when they were in school during, you know, in the last number of years that I was working with teenagers. In grade seven, the students tackle sexual relationships. Teaching uh, curriculum notes do not increase sexual behavior, can actually prevent risky activity. Uh, students learn about how to talk about sexual activity, what means to, to, to uh, delaying it or, or the consent to it, the emotional, social, and psychological factors considering before making a decision about having sex. They learn about sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections and diseases. Simpsons are discussed, how to prevent them. Okay, now we're starting to make that, that that starts to make a little sense to me. Kids learn more about factors that contribute to making safe and healthy decisions about sexual activity and so on. Abstinence, con contraceptive, and conception and consent in eighth grade. They also talk a lot about gender identity, gender expression, gen sexual orientation, and identity factors that can help young people to develop personal 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 identities. Right. So I think anything that's designed to help kids be at their best is great. But I think that curriculum, I don't know how you feel. I'd love to hear from you. If you don't have time to call in, send me a note at least. Right. But I, I think at the end of the day, right, is that, um, you know, I think all kids need to have a, 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 the ability to uh, to uh, to to express themselves, to feel comfortable in their own skin. Some kids don't feel comfortable in the same you know, the same outfits that perhaps their parents think they need to be wearing to school. It's, that's as simple as what to wear. It boils down to much more serious conversation in terms of how they feel about what they, what, who they are and what they're all about. These are serious conversations that need to help happen for the mental health and wellness of the kid. I'm just not sure if 
starting this in school is the right place. Maybe it is. Maybe this. Maybe I'm totally wrong, right? Maybe it's it's a great place to get this conversation started if you can bring it home and continue to have it at home. But I think these are conversations that need to be have in be had in the household. And I think parents and family and siblings need to be involved. If there's older siblings in the in the family, for example, you've got a 15 year old. That 15 year old might be a great bridge to have the conversation with the 11 year old, right? So um, I also think that peer support's a big deal. I think healthy 16-year-olds talking to healthy 16-year-olds or teaching kids, 16-year-olds, how to maintain that somewhat healthy lifestyle and, and making positive and healthy choices. Kids learn best from uh, models of some sort, you know, modeling good behavior and making good model choices. Um, I think so learning from, from uh, peer groups, perhaps older than them, is not a terrible idea. It, it's an awful lot. And I know that the world is up in arms about it. I just want everybody to chill out give every side a chance to, to, to voice their opinion. And for God's sakes, my friends, let's not leave the kids in the middle and have them end up as a bunch of collateral damage because we as adults can't get out of our own way. That's what I think about the whole matter. Let it be what it should be. Let the families be involved and let the kids have a healthy opportunity to be children and to express themselves in a way that kids need to express themselves. That's what's very important. If you are a senior, okay, if you're like my dad, my dad's 97, my mother was 95 when she passed, and if they weren't able to be together for whatever reason in the same facility, which we were able to manage to do that, which was at their home, we brought people in as opposed to put them in a care facility or had them enter a care facility, but not everyone's in that position. So in Ontario in particular, many Ontarians may not realize it, but senior couples can be forced into different facilities when they enter long-term care in the in this particular province. If you're at an age, if you age at a slower rate than, let's say, your partner, your husband, your wife, whatever, and your partner requires more care in the wake of an illness or an injury or something, they may be sent to a different home or a care center, and there's no requirement for it to be nearby even, let alone for you to be in the same facility. I think that this is a problem. Right. Not only I'm not the only one. Other people do, too. Heartbreaking reality facing so many seniors across the province, especially as Ontario's population ages and long term care homes face shortages of staff through systemic underfunding and staff burnout. So Jim McLeod, he's a senior who was separated from his wife, uh, Joan, for almost six years after 64 years of marriage. His heartbreak has spurred him to advocate relentlessly to be reunited with her and make sure that no one else ever goes through the same thing he did. Not bad at a boy, Jim. Absolutely a guy at his best. And awfully young to be separated from his wife, in my opinion. Jim inspired me to write uh, just the, the Till Death Do Us Part Act Bill 21, a truly nonpartisan solution, according to uh, Senior Care Ontario. In his words, Jim's story must read, my heart is breaking and so is my wife's Jones. Next month will mark six years that we've been physically separated after 60, I'm sorry, after 64 years of marriage. He's not 64. After 64 years of marriage because of a long-term care system that doesn't value seniors or listen to our needs. 64 years with the same person and after 50 odd years of it, right? He's, they become separated. Joan doesn't understand why they can't be together. They've contributed to our, the communities, paid taxes and so on. Uh, their, their needs, spousal, the Ontario needs what's called spousal reunification to be enshrined in legislation, right? So this is what this family, this is what this man is pushing towards for the benefit. Senior reunification is 
nonpartisan issue. Um, you got you should be contacting your member of provincial parliament if you're listening to this and you live in Ontario. It's talking about Bill 21, right? Till death do us part act. I think it's brilliant. I think that this is where what needs to happen here. I don't think there's another way to look at this. Have a listen to MPP Catherine Fife, who's the champion of the bill, and what she has to say. So uh, Bill 21, the Till Death Do Us Part Act, was inspired by couples in Waterloo Region and really across the province who had reached out to our office and, you know, found out as they aged that there was no legislation, no guarantee whatsoever that they will be able to spend their, their last years together. The bill has been introduced three times. It has passed three times, and but it's now a committee and it's been there actually for uh, 250 days. Yeah, so that's the part I don't get. I, it, it's a great idea. It's gonna, it's going to help people be at their best. It certainly, I think, will save lives. You know, there's, there's no, how do I say this? There, there's a lot of statistical information around what happens when people are separated, when perhaps you know someone passes and and uh, and they have to, you know, they carry on after you know 50, 60 years of marriage. My parents were married for almost seventy-five years. I think seventy. They celebrated seventy-five years before my mother passed a, a year and a half or so ago, almost two years ago. Um, and my father, as much as he's you know ninety-seven, thank God, and, and really kicking and, and working, goes to do his work thing every day, his volunteer work and so on, gets dressed up. He's just not the same. And for many people who aren't like my father, who don't keep themselves busy, you know, it's not uncommon for one spouse to pass and another spouse to pass within a year or 18 months of the other one passing. So the separation can be deadly, quite honestly, can be lethal. So for us to keep people separated like that, is, is unheard of. I'm not sure what's going on in other provinces. I didn't have much time to do the homework. I apologize to see what's going on across Canada, but certainly in Ontario where, where I happen to reside, um, it's, you know, this is uh, exactly um, a problem that that's going on. This is according to uh, my buddy Leonardo here, Leo in the studio. He says, that's what happened to the queen. She was separated. Right. So uh, what, ha you know, that you lose a lot. As soon as you lose your, 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 your husband, your wife of that many years, you lose a part of yourself. And, you know, as much as it's, you know, nice to say that you can, you know, learn more from community and get more out of community and, you know, your community will support you. You know, there's nothing better than being by the side of your, your, uh, your partner, even in a time of difficulty, even when, you know, I know it's difficult for many people where one, one or the other uh, ends up with a, with a, a memory issue, like uh, some form of dementia, you know, it's, it's, it can be brutal. I I've seen it with, with uh, in my own family where, you know, with one relative, um, you know, an uncle and an aunt, they've both since passed. Uh, but my aunt was, uh, you know, she had Alzheimer's for a long, long time. She was diagnosed at a very young age. And my uncle chose to be the one that cared for her along with some support and some care, you know, some professionals, but he was there. He, and that's his choice. And clearly uh, within, you know, not long after she passed, he passed. Um, you know, his whole purpose was to take care of his, uh, his sick wife, but they did it together. They were, thankfully they were able to afford to do that, but not everybody can. And if you're relying on the government to give you a place to live and it's a senior center and is this, you know, you're going to be living in that kind of facility, they can decide based on criteria if you go together. So this legislation, this bill that's designed to make sure that this doesn't happen, that's designed to make sure that, you know, till death do us part, that people are able to stay together, especially later in life. I mean, come on, man. 
you know, 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years with the same person. And then now you're separated because of, 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 uh, of one form or another, some form of illness. So listen, it happens, right? It definitely happens where one or the other ends up in hospital in some way, shape or form. Right. And then you're separated because of, of the hospital stay. But in terms of a, a lo- in terms of a long-term living arrangement, to not have the opportunity to be right beside your, your loved one, your sweetie. I, I just don't think that's right. I don't think that's a that's a government at their best. It's sitting in legislation. It's getting ready or to be to be approved. It's been passed enough times. I don't know what's holding these folks back. Maybe they don't have seniors yet in their lives that you know may be affected by this. And maybe you know most of our legislation legislators and people in government across this country, especially in this province, you know they're not hungry. And likely is they're not going to end up in some kind of long term care home for themselves or their loved ones or parents because they can afford otherwise. I'm talking about the common people, just everyone out there that, you know, doesn't have the means to spend $10,000 a month on private long-term care because that's what it costs. And even in that situation, there's no guarantee that you're going to end up with your loved one because if it requires more health care, then they have to send that person to a facility that will, in fact, you know, support the health care needs. And, you know, your needs in particular aren't part of the process, you as the as the healthier spouse. So vote for that bill in Ontario if you're listening to me. If not, tell your friends, make sure that they're voting for it. It's the right thing to do. It'll make you at your best and give our seniors and the people moving forward in life a chance to be together, share together, and live a, live a happy life together. And how that works out, it works out, right? So if one passes and the other doesn't, at least they happen to be by each other at the time. What we're talking about here right now is a very serious subject. It's We're talking about um, people who are released um, for day passes after being men- uh, mentally incompetent and as a result have created um, have created how to uh, created uh, a situation whereby you know they they get out on a day pass they then get the opportunity to harm again um, you know they're they're found not you know not guilty of a crime by reason of um, mental incapacity and so on so uh, Blair Evan Donnelly he's 64 he's seen in a provincial uh, was seen in a provincial court last. Uh, Friday or so ago, September 15th, um, he'd been previously, he was involved in a Chinatown, allegedly a Chinatown stabbing, um, again, recently um, on the 15th. But the same guy had recently been found not guilty, not criminally responsible, if you will. That, that's the term, criminally responsible, for stabbing his teenage daughter to death in 2006. And he was sent to BC's Forensic Psychiatric Hospital in Coquitlam. And somehow was able to get out on a day pass uh, on Friday the 15th and um, create havoc in Chinatown. Um, So the story goes on uh, to talk about um, this um, individual. Her name is Rebecca. Her brother, uh, Ken, was um, affected by uh, someone who was let out and uh, so on. Uh, Ken was killed um, with a hammer by by someone who was responsible, uh, meant not uh, criminally responsible for their actions due to mental illness. Um, he was just dismembered and so on. It, it was a horrible story. So I, I have an expert on here uh, with us. His name is Dave uh, Tashera, and he's a victim's right advocate, and he's going to join us right now from British Columbia. Dave, how are you? Doing well, and uh, thanks for uh, talking about this. This is a pretty important topic, so I appreciate it. 
Yeah, man. You know, it's um, it's been going on like over the years. Like you know, you know, I've had a lot of work because I work with mental health and addiction. A lot of work with the uh, folks at CAMH. There's a forensic unit there. You know, there's often people wandering and you know being uh, you know they, they've lost you know, more around losing them, can't find them. Fortunately, more much more so than leading to crimes. But you know, across the country, we'll focus on BC here for a sec. But like, you know, I get the idea of not being criminally responsible, but how are we, how are the cracks being so wide open, left so wide open here that these folks are out there to, uh, to, uh, able to, to re, you know, to, uh, re, reoffend, if you will, or act out on their demons. Um, why aren't we doing a better job, Dave? Well, I, I think we're not doing a better job, at least in British Columbia, because the BC Review Board seems to be more, uh, concerned about ideological viewpoints as opposed to truly looking after the well-being of those who are mentally uh, unwell and for the safety of, of, the, of the public as a whole. What I mean by that is you'll see that the review board are very active in uh, being in the public realm looking for pay raises. <laughs> They're very active um, going against government policy that forces them to be more accountable. And here in British Columbia, approximately 10 years ago, they basically wiped out their website, taking away the opportunity for the public to see what they're doing. Only this week, through the public pressure and through Premier David Eby, I'm guessing, kind of cracking a whip, basically saying, it's time for you guys to be more accountable. And because of that lack of accountability, we don't know what's taking place. And unfortunately, those who suffer from mental illness uh, are the ones who are actually uh, the ones who are being the most traumatized at this point. I, th- I think th- I think th- I think you're right. I hear what you're saying, but you know, you're looking at it from a family's perspective. I know that it's affecting those that are suffering with unstable mental health, but from from the community's perspective, um, they just see this as someone who should have been under better supervision and wasn't. Yeah. And of course, it traumatizes the, the the potential offender, the alleged offender. Certainly, traumatizes the community and the families that are affected by it. But you know. There's a, you're right. There's a fine line between the rights of, of uh, quote unquote, the person that's perpetrating the crime, regardless of the motivation and reason, and those that are, you know, affected by it in terms of the public. How do we how are we going to find a balance here, brother? Like, you know, we got to protect people better, including those that are that are have yeah. the that have mental Ill, illness issues and so on. Um, what is what do you think this is going to what do you think it's going to take now? These review boards, as you've identified, you know, they're clearly not doing their jobs. Um, how are we going to make sure this is a more serious, we have a more serious approach going forward? Governments need to step in. In British Columbia, it's the government who appoints these folks to the review board. They're the ones who oversee it. And, you know, as as tragic as this incident with Donnelly was, uh, I think, coming on to two weeks now, where he stabbed three people. And this is after he stabbed someone else in 2009. And that was his daughter. After his daughter. He, he murdered his daughter, Stephanie, in 2006. Yeah. So yeah. Donnelly should never have been given these sort of freedoms. Similarly, I've been representing the, the, the family, uh, Dar- Darcy Clark's family here in British Columbia, whose father, uh, Alan Shornborn, murdered the three children in 2008. Yeah. And similarly, yeah. Shornborn has the opportunity to be out on the exact same 28-day pass that Donnelly was out on. So really it's time for the review board to step up and, and take more of a leadership role and say, look, oh, if, if someone has this sort of vast history of violence and they're not showing a, the proper recovery, they shouldn't be there. And as well, I think as a society, we have to grapple with that fine line between 
Uh, yes, there, there's an NCR regime where people need to get better, but we may have to, for lack of a better term, uh, force some of the rehabilitation. Now, we're not talking like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or yeah. anything yeah. like that, but what we're talking about is if someone is so ill that he or she cannot recognize their actions are dangerous, they're also not going to be in a position to make sound uh, decisions to get themselves better. And that's where a compassionate society and a compassionate uh, medical and judicial system will step in and say, you know what, you're not ready for, for public life. We need you to get better and we want you to get better. And you know what, you want to get better too. You just don't realize it. And here are the steps to that. And being out in the public may not be one of those steps at this time. And we need to get better at saying and doing that. Joined here with Dave Teixeira. He is a victim's rights advocate in uh, British Columbia. And we're talking about um, people who are found to be criminally um, uh, not responsible as a result of uh, mental health and various other uh, diagnoses around uh, behavior. It can be temporary, it can be uh, permanent. It depends on the, on the person's diagnosis and so on. Um, Dave, thanks for being a part of this with me, man. Um, so we were talking before we went to break about the concept of, you know, someone testing, you know, quote unquote, testing nicely before they get their pass, yeah. get their pass, get down the street, run into a guy wearing, you know, a blue hat and a red jacket just freaks them out because it reminds them of some triggers something from the past. How are we ever going to prevent prevent this? What's the answer, do you think? Well, the answer is is better supports for those who are within the system. And it's also the review board doing their job, which is to listen to what the practitioners are saying. So in the Donnelly case, you have all these doctors. There was, an ele- there was a seven-page report that was leaked to myself and other reporters here in British Columbia. And it was only because of that leak that we saw that the doctors were saying, please do not let this man out. He's a high risk to reoffend. So what does the what does the review board do? They say, well, we agree he's a high risk, but we're still going to give him the opportunity to have uh, up to 28 days in a community. But the final decision maker will be the director of the hospital. And what we've seen in these hospitals is they, the individuals, the, the doctors, nurses, the practitioners who are face-to-face with these individuals every single day are expressing concerns about certain individuals, yet the review board and the directors of these facilities are ignoring these pleas. So the first piece of this, Yana, is is really we need to listen to what these professionals are saying and Mm -hmm. give them the support. And having the review board say, well, we're not saying yes or no, we're just giving uh, someone else the opportunity. Well, that's that's not what the review board's supposed to do. The review board's not supposed to make a nice, safe playing field for other people to make decisions. The review board is supposed to be there to take all the information in and provide what they believe is the next best course of action and then give the director the ability to, to action that. And if they also think they should not get released, they should say that. But in more cases than not, you'll see it's literally a copy and paste from a Word document into their decisions. It's the same wording each and every time. We, 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 we want the patient to have access to the community at the direction of the director of the facility, and that's wrong. What do you mean up to 28 days? I'm going to go backwards. You yeah. mean, you mean, really, you mean yeah. they could potentially be released from care in the community for up to 28 days? I thought these were like day releases. Like, are yeah, we talking about overnights? Yeah, there's several different um, abilities for, for individuals who are on NCR to, to, to leave the hospital. They can be on escorted leave which might uh-huh. be for just a, like 20 minutes uh, right. or up to a few hours. 
uh, it could be actually to go shopping or to do, do something at a recreation facility. Then the individual might have unescorted leave for a few hours, then maybe one overnight. And then the, the kind of the, the big step is having these outings of up to 28 days, which is often a precursor to a full discharge. So once you see an individual get to this uh, up to 28 days of un- unescorted leave, pretty much what the facility and the review board are saying is, we're going to let this guy out or let this person out pretty soon. And this is sort of the last test. Now, now to be clear, I, I do believe that the vast majority of individuals in these hospitals are wanting to get healthy and wanting to get out. But there's also mm-hmm. a subset who are just either so evil or, or so mentally unfit that they just do not understand the risks they pose. And this is where the review board has to say no and this is where the director has to say no and support the findings of their medical professionals in their facilities. Because I've heard time and time again over the last 15 years that I've been involved with victims' rights and advocacy that the, the practitioners in the hospitals are being ignored. And the result is what we saw two weeks ago here in Vancouver, where three people were stabbed by someone out on a day pass. So was that he was uh, just on he was a day pass he wasn't one of those twenty eight dayers right so the, well, the, the, no well here here's the issue is because of the secrecy of the DC review board we don't know and in fact don't know. Yeah. Donnelly Donnelly's hearing was closed it was it was it, sorry when I say closed is there's publication ban but to be clear back in April of this year he was granted leave of up to twenty eight days. So what we know is the day that, the, that he stabbed the individuals was the day that he was let out. But what we don't know is, was he let out for just one day, two days, or up to 28 days? And for, for, for this person to be let out with the history that he has is ridiculous. And, and, I, and mark my words, he will reoffend. In fact, I, w- I would even be willing to put money down that he's already reoffended in back in the hospital or, or even when he was incarcerated. This is a man who's had a lifelong history of violence. And, uh, and what we saw this a couple of weeks ago was just his natural course. He has not been helped yet, and he should not be out. He needs to be helped. So uh, you think this is a constitutional thing? You think this is like, um, you know, the, the, the people that are running hospitals and, and like, is there, is there a t- like, when do we know, like, I can tell you as a therapist, but it, it's a very, very, like we talked about a little bit before here, it's a very fine line between whether they're quote unquote fixed or not. And, you know, yeah. and sometimes, often, actually, those that are found not criminally responsible are under, you know, under doctor's care, psychiatric care and medicated. So now we're now the concern is, OK, they're, they're, they, they do great on medication as long as they're taking their meds and eating properly and keeping their blood levels like they should. But there's no guarantee, Dave, that even right. out on a day pass or a 28 day pass that they don't say, you know, you know, forget this. I don't need my meds today like many do with things like schizophrenia and bipolar and so on that I'm feeling pretty good. I don't need my meds today. And they don't take their meds. Now all bets are off and there's no one doing any kind of check or, or balance here. Right. And, and it's a continuum of health and it's a continuum of behaviors. But on the day that someone is granted a pass, they are given an assessment. So in this case with Donnelly, it's going to be interesting to see who actually signed off. Because even right now, we can't even find out who is the director that signed off. No one seems to know, and the review board has closed ranks. They won't answer emails. They won't answer. 
uh, questions. And so the government under David Eby, Premier David Eby, uh, has asked for a review, and they're now going to be looking into this single incident, which is great, but it's a larger issue. You need to look at the system as a whole and, and provide that continuum of care and not be afraid to say, you know what, for the next year, because these are annual reviews that these individuals go on, for the next year, you're not getting out. What you're going to do instead is focus on your treatment because we want you to get better. So, again, you know, I guess you know, as we wind down here, um, you know, the, it's the, similar to release from prison. The, the litmus test for release, I, I spent 10 years as a, as a chaplain in the prison system, and the litmus test for someone being released from prison on a day release or into a halfway house, you know, is, is also uh, fraught with all kinds of, of issues in terms of a p- opportunity to reoffend and so on. Um, you know, before I let you go here, what's what's the in the short term? What's the what's your game plan? What what are you doing as an advocate, and you and your team? Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do to drive this uh, this story forward and continue to stay in the face of those that make these decisions? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to continue to do what I've done over 15 years, and hopefully have greater success. Quite frankly, uh, in, here in British Columbia, I've met with three premiers, seven uh, attorney generals. I've met with two prime ministers. Um, regrettably not the current one. The current one will not meet with myself or other victim rights advocates on this issue, which is unfortunate. But I'm going to continue to put the political pressure because at the end of the day, with a stroke of a pen, the prime minister and or the individual premiers of provinces can make these changes. And as I said earlier in our, in our talk here, it's, they have to get the, out of the ideological way. They have to realize that there needs to be a more forced method of treatment in some cases because individuals can be so ill they don't understand the extent of their illness and uh, and they don't understand they're not well and a caring society will provide those supports not provide the means to skirt those supports and that's what's happening right now at least in british columbia and and i truly hope that premier eby and others will, will, will have that political will to make those changes which will improve things for those who are mentally uh unwell in, in the NCR system and the public at a whole, as a whole. Dave Teixeira, great guy. Thanks for sharing with me, buddy. We'll have you back on a few months from now. See how this thing, uh, if something comes up too that you want us to share, let me know. You get you back on here to give, give you a platform for sure. Thanks so much for being here, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great evening.